even though we talk about the 84,000 Dhamma Khandas, Dhamma teachings that the Buddha gave. As we know, they all keep coming back to the basic or fundamental teachings of the Four Noble Truths. Just like all the footprints of the different animals in the forest can all fit within the footprint of the elephant. So all the teachings the Buddha gave, gave fit within the Four Noble Truths. But out of his compassion and wisdom and a peaceful mind, it's obvious that he was a creative teacher and applying the Dhamma to different people in different situations. So hence we get a whole variety of teachings that we can draw on for inspiration and clarification of the Four Noble Truths and particularly the Eightfold Path, the practice that leads to the end of suffering. But it all comes back down to the Four Noble Truths. So we have these regular teachings on, <coughs> say, dukkha. What is dukkha? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Separation from all that we love and like is dukkha. Not attaining what our wishes is dukkha. And so on. We have so many teachings, reflections, chants that keep coming back to the basic teaching on dukkha, what it is. So it's necessary to really become familiar with dukkha as a noble truth, to awaken to the truth. Because our habit as human beings is always to seek out comfort, security, but usually in the wrong places, or only in attempt finding in a very temporary way. So since Long before the time of the Buddha, human beings have always been seeking out shelter, food supply, safety from predators or danger, and so on. That's our habit. So it's deeply instinctive, always to seek out comfort. So then we tend to forget dukkha distract ourselves from dukkha, overlook it, dismiss it. 
especially in this modern age. In many areas of society it's not even fashionable to admit to dukkha. Doesn't sound good, doesn't look good. Maybe the most that we, people admit to is that they need some therapy for some issue or problem. But generally dukkha is not something we people like to talk about and awaken to. Our society and culture doesn't encourage that. And yet it's staring us in the face. It's just we tend to overlook it. As they say, when we're born, yes, we're at our most vulnerable and our experience is full of dukkha. And we're born with our fists clenched and we're crying and totally helpless. So if you were like that as an adult, you'd be totally embarrassed. You're crying, dependent on people to feed you and wash you and clothe you like a baby. But then as we get old, into old age, often that is what happens. We return to being more like a baby, especially as our memory goes and our physical strength goes. We often become very dependent on those around us and are sometimes completely dependent. Again, <clears throat> can be a very embarrassing time when we've lived a life of being independent, strong, capable, and then having to depend on others can be very embarrassing and difficult to accept. And obviously we have all the other offshoots and different types of dukkha, <coughs> which are there all the time for us to note, be awakened, to awaken to. Again, our habit is to tend to turn off through habit and seek sense, stimulation, indulgence. Even mentally our routines tend to be, often we slip into mental habits where we're not awakening to truth or seeing dukkha as a noble truth. We're just complacent or cruising along, not noticing or hiding it. And this is why the Buddha kept bringing the mind back to dukkha, something to be known, understood and awakened to, because that's what motivates us to practice. It helps us when we realize that the nature of our existence is dukkha. It's not all comfortable, it's not all secure and safe. It's the nat nature of human existence, is it? Full of dukkha, bound up with dukkha. But this is the beginning of the arising of wisdom when we see that. But we have to go against this stream of the world 
the habit of the world and the people around us and our own habits that try to always hide from dukkha, turn it, turn away from it. But hopefully a source of joy, say particularly in the monastic life, is that you have all the tools, skills available and support available for investigating dukkha and overcoming it, going beyond it, through understanding it, and uh, freeing the mind from the causes of dukkha, the craving, the attachment, the clinging, and the delusion. And we're in the best position to deal with it, but it does mean we have to keep returning to these basic aspects of human existence. So we have to rely on a lot of patience and effort and wisdom. Nowadays we're exposed to not only our own dukkha but news and information and stimulation about everyone else's dukkha as well. It's a very common question people or comment people bring up is the the way there's so much bad news as if the world is somehow worse than before. More bad news means that we're worse off. If you look and study this whole process, well, you can see it's coming from exactly the same place as say someone living 5,000 years ago. You know, whatever level of communication people had in those days, they would be the same, They're telling each other where there's danger, where there's food and water, where there's safety, what dangers are around, wild animals, unfriendly people. Heavy rain, earthquakes, whatever it may have been, people would warn each other about danger and that habit is still with us today. So we have bad news about disasters and wars and all the things that you can find out now from newspapers and news media. And nothing's changed but just the technology, the ability to deliver it to us has perhaps improved. So it seems worse. But this is part of human existence, isn't it? Being aware, aware of danger and alert to danger. Often we feel secure when we know what's happening. So it's a very common, again, a very common modern habit is to always want to have the latest information, the latest update, to know exactly what's happening, where the danger lies, what's being done about it, how it affects us. But of course a lot of this is related to events and situations far away from us, in other countries or in other parts of the same country, physically nowhere near us. So we really have to learn to filter and contemplate exactly what's happening if you are receiving all this news. Not just the negativity of it, the sort of depressing nature of it on the mind, but also just the relevance of it.
you live in the forest as a bhikkhu, there are dangers around. <clears throat> There's snakes, trees fall over. Most of the animals around here are fairly peaceful, unthreatening, but you never know. Even uh, a deer or a kangaroo, when it's aroused, can be dangerous. But there's not a lot of danger in the forest. But that's that's where you know we we're most mindful. It's what what's the immediate dangers around us? Disease and other things like that. Whereas what's going on in the rest of the world, although it's of note and can can be vaguely relevant. Can, be, can arouse compassion or under sympathy for people suffering elsewhere. But often it's not an immediate pressure on us. And ma the majority of people in the world can say that as well. You know, most people go about their daily lives. The dukkha they're encountering is very minor. They're not being threatened by terrorists or natural disasters. It's only a very small percentage of the population or accidents or disease. It's always there, but if you reflect back on your daily life, say today, you know, we don't face a lot of dukkha on the average day, and a lot of danger. As you practice mindfulness and learn to reflect wisely on your life and your situation and these kind of reflections arise then you say there is dukkha there but you can also see it's a lot of the dukkha we're facing is further away from us and that's what can be the cause for this complacency or the habit of not being very motivated to practice or arouse energy in the practice because the dukkha is further away. So this is why we <clears throat> reflect daily on old age, sickness and death, separation from what we love and like is sure, not attaining one's wishes, not getting every expectation fulfilled because it brings us back to the truth. Sometimes teachers who are awakened, enlightened, Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Mahabur, particularly the forest Ajans, are very good at pointing out the dukkha or getting people to see dukkha because they understand the value of it as a way of waking up the human mind bringing back mindfulness. Because dukkha, especially in a practice situation when you're in a monastery, does tend to make you stop, think, brings up mindfulness. At the very least it leads you to want to overcome the immediate problem of the dukkha. So if you have pain in your legs when you're meditating, you start thinking, oh, what am I going to do about this? Am I going to move, contemplate it, whatever? Dukkha, you know, it can be the cause of 
that sense of urgency in the practice, bringing up mindfulness and contemplating. So teachers tend to point it out, remind us of it. That's why some of those enlightened teachers, people found it difficult living with them. It's like living with somebody who keeps pricking you with a needle or something, because they keep pointing out the dukkha. It's not that they're actually creating the dukkha, they're simply helping to show it to the student. Whether it's just mental dukkha, our attachment to our reputation or sense of comfort or personal worth with comments or that they make or situations that arise or more physical dukkha going not getting to sleep when you want or sitting for long periods when you want to get up working hard when you just want to lie down or whatever they saw the value of the of that way of teaching not to inflict you know, deliberately inflict pain on their students but to help them to awaken to the way existence is as a human being that is bound up with dukkha and the way out of dukkha is through the practice developing the path so you often you live in the forest on your own when you do have feelings of fear or loneliness or anxiety, you know, what do you come back to? Well, there's always the reflection on the Buddha, recollecting the Buddha, and then the recollection of Sila. You know, over and over again, Lumpur Cha would say, you, know, you have your Sila as your refuge. If all else fails, if you're not particularly mindful or peaceful or wisdom doesn't seem to be there and you're in a situation where you're feeling the dukkha or the pressure of dukkha then you have your sila as your foundation what grounds you maybe the reflection of today I've kept the Vikku Vinaya reasonably well we may always have a, one or two small hiccups or glitches if you generally kept your Vinaya well for a day, that's an incredible source of stability to the mind. You know, no regret, and it can be a great source of joy when you reflect mindfully on it. And if you've got nothing else, say you're in the forest facing potential danger <clears throat> or even a direct danger, and you fall back on your sila. If nothing else, you've kept the bhikkhu, vinaya, the patimokha for a day, or if you're a lay person, you've kept the eight precepts or the five precepts even. That's what you fall back on. And literally it stabilizes the mind when you reflect on sila, sila anusati, recollecting sila, bringing up the intention to keep sila, keep vinaya, stabilizes the mind. That's the effect it has. <clears throat> Giving into more unskillful intentions to break the break sealer destabilizes the mind, agitates the mind. 
You know, there's no way around it. When we've broken the sealant and we realize it, we don't feel good. The mind finds it hard to settle down. But as you live this life, then the more you commit to it and practice and train, well, the better you get at keeping sila, learning the Vinaya, getting used to it, being comfortable with it. So that's an endless source of peace, stability, or you could even say security of mind to deal with just the daily dukkha of experience. Sometimes you know, situations arise, it doesn't have to be the teacher who makes you awaken to dukkha or instills the mindfulness. Sometimes just situations arise by themselves that naturally wake us up. When you have a close call, see, some kind of accident or potential accident in a monastery can be like that. It just brings you back to the present moment and you're aware of the fragility of human life or your physical experience. You're aware how easily you could hurt or even kill yourself in certain situations. Sometimes they, these situations just pop up by themselves. And they're, again, they're food for mindfulness, food for reflection. I remember the first time I stayed with Lumpur Tui many, many years ago, there was uh, one morning came out for Bindabhan and another visiting monk had come out of his kuti and on the rock near his kuti there'd been a tiger sitting there. <clears throat> and obviously, even though it's a big forest monastery and there were a lot of animals, you know, the, the knowledge the monks had was that there's no tigers there. They had a wall around the monastery, even though it was a very large forest, still had a wall around it. So normally you walked around the monastery not expecting to see a tiger, but then there was a tiger. So Lumpur Tui found it very useful for stimulating mindfulness and awareness of danger and dukkha in the Sangha. It was a, you know, a perfect gift of a teaching opportunity. The tiger had jumped the wall, it swam the Mekong and come through villages and forested areas just looking for food and probably was attracted by the deer in Lumpotui's monastery. It lasted a few days before it moved moved on, jumped the wall and disappeared again. But how that changes everything. You know, suddenly you have something that's a threat. It could be a person, you know, if you have a, some kind of a criminal or a thief on the loose or something like that, or in this case a tiger on the loose. It wakes you up, wakes you up to dukkha. You become aware of impermanence, the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of your own safety and security. What does it do to the mind? It makes you think, you know, where's the tiger now? Is it anywhere near me? Will it jump out on me? Because it was obviously hungry, skinny, looking for food.
And over the centuries, monks have actually gone off into the forest looking for those situations to stimulate this kind of urgency in the practice and the reflection on dukkha. You're staying where there's malaria or dengue fever and not knowing whether the next mosquito bite will bring disease. Staying where there's wild animals, staying where the support is not sure. You're not sure if you'll get much food or help as a bhikkhu. These kind of situations bring up the urgency in the practice, the reflection on dukkha. But then this leads on to the drive to practice, the motivation to go beyond dukkha and go right back into the heart and to the training, the Eightfold Path. So you come back to sila. So maybe you just have the reflection, well, even if uh, I die from an illness or <clears throat> a tree falls on me or an animal kills me, at least I've got my sila to hold on to. You know, even if you feel you have no real attainments with samadhi or insight, you've got sila, which is no small thing. You can feel good that you've kept the bhikkhu vinaya all this time. That's an attainment in itself. And that's a refuge if you have nothing else. But obviously we have more than that. We have our practice of mindfulness and reflecting on the Dhamma. So as we develop that, then our refuge, our sense of inner peace and security to deal with dukkha and face with dukkha, well, it deepens. We've got more. We've got the practice of mindfulness. So the Buddha always encouraged us to go back to Gaya Gada Sati. Once you learn, you've learned to keep sila, keep the Vinaya, then keep directing attention back to the body. First focus of mindfulness, Satipatthana. Direct attention to the body. Again, you'll keep noticing dukkha as you do that. The changing nature of the body, the aging, the heat, the cold, the hunger, the thirst, the discomfort. So Gaya Gadasati tends to lead straight on to Vaitana Satipatthana as well. Contemplation of feelings, particularly physical feelings based around the body. Pain and comfort, pain and pleasure. But keep directing the mind back to the body and you keep seeing dukkha as a noble truth. The nature of a human body is dukkha. From day one when we're born through to last day, whenever that may be, we don't know. This body is bound up with dukkha and expressing dukkha for us to see when we become mindful of it. But as you keep directing your attention to the body with mindfulness, a strange things happen. You, know, you start to develop some consistency of mindfulness. With that, you gain some lightness of body and mind. Your feelings can change as you're becoming more mindful of the body. Even though you're aware of dukkha, but with the purification of mindfulness 
and the development of wise reflection and insight is that you actually start to feel light and at ease in the mind, which gives you a greater tolerance and ability to reflect on the dukkha of a body without getting caught up in it, lost in it, without just reacting to it, seeking distraction to get away from it or falling into a aversion or depression because of it. You're just noting it, the dukkha of an aging body, the dukkha of painful feelings with posture and hunger and so on. You're just noting it with mindfulness, but not clinging, not giving into craving and wanting and clinging, dana upatana, but just noting it. It's the way it is. This is how a human body is. But the mind becoming more distant from its old habit of just reacting to the dukkha of a body, but now just knowing it, there's more separation. And with that you get the lightness, the peace of mind and even peace of body. You're sitting for a long time, you can go through dukkha waiting and it can completely disappear. Walking meditation, if you give yourself the chance and keep walking, when you may be restless or bored, but you keep doing it, you might find you experience great feelings of pity and sukha arising over time. And as you're mindful of that, you can see you the dukkha of a body, you can know it, but without having to get caught up in it and attached to it. This is something you can only gain through the practice, the experience of, say, pity and sukha arising as you practice mindfulness directed to the body. You can't get it from the books. And we've all read the books and started our practice usually with a lot of books and listening to talks, which is no doubt invaluable for our practice. But you can only really experience what the teachers or what the Buddha have experienced through practicing, developing the mindfulness. So you can contemplate to see dukkha as dukkha, as a noble truth. See the cause of dukkha, the craving, the wanting that keeps affecting the mind. When you lose mindfulness, lose awareness, that's what the mind gets caught into. What does that bring? It brings clinging, attachment. In short, we say the sense of self. Self-view, attachment to the idea of self and attaching to experience as self, the candors as self, back with dukkha again, but without the mindfulness. Every time we give in to craving which conditions attachment, we lose our mindfulness, then we're back with dukkha again. And to practice like this, we obviously have to try and develop a wise or balanced approach. Because dukkha by its nature is 
oppressive, difficult to be with. It's suffering, stressful, it's suffering. So we have to build up our skills, our mindfulness and our ability to investigate and look at the truth so that we can see dukkha more clearly as it is. But do this in a balanced way. If we push too hard, we experience too much dukkha too, too quickly, too often, then it can have an unwanted effect on the mind and we just find the practice too difficult and be put off and lose our inspiration, lose our motivation. Obviously we know the other side of the coin, we know what indulgence is like, always seeking comfort. Even as a bhikkhu you can seek out a certain amount of comfort to the point where you can just indulge. And that doesn't work either. And I think most of us know that already. But we have to find out what is right effort, and balanced effort and an effort that we can sustain regularly and keep coming back to because the only way to develop in the practice is through continuous regular practice keep building on the mindfulness, the wisdom that we've developed so far and keep coming back to it, keep applying the mind to the practice to the contemplation of the body, feelings, mind, mind objects To sustain that kind of practice, we have to find a balanced way. We're neither pushing ourselves to the point we just want to give up, nor are we indulging in breaking our vinaya or just exploiting the situation we're in. And that's part of the wisdom, the insight that we gain through the practice and we learn what, what level is the right practice for us with this set of candors, this body, this mind, our character, our physical strengths and weaknesses, our mental strengths and weaknesses. We have to learn a balanced approach that's <clears throat> practical and sustainable. <clears throat> We'd all like to experience quick results in the practice, quick enlightenment, just like we read some of the teachers, like Lumpo Jia or Lumpo Tongrat, sounded like just a few years and already reached Arahata Magapala. Really, it's no different, we're no different from them, but we have to be careful not to try and do it all in one night, or one week, or one year even. But then not to get disappointed if we haven't achieved what some of these great teachers have achieved very quickly. To recognize this really ideally is a lifetime commitment. Maybe many lifetimes. It doesn't really matter. You just commit to the practice and then use your skills to keep, keep developing the qualities of the Eightfold Path and the skillful qualities that help us to develop insight into the Four Noble Truths.
Uh, Lung Po Cha used to say, don't be afraid of a bit of dukkha. We have to be courageous in the practice, brave, to look where normal, unenlightened human beings don't really want to look. They'd rather be distracted, they'd rather get away from dukkha. Be willing to look, but to look with wisdom and clarity. You know, really study from what's going on rather than just always reacting or trying to run away from it. As I mentioned, we generally on a daily basis we have a lot of pleasant things happen to us. When you reflect on that, that with mindfulness, you know, that's another support for our practice, just to recollect you know, with appreciation, say the good goodness of the people around us, the environment, the support, the good opportunities we have. You know, use mindfulness and wisdom to reflect on that, to uplift the mind and bring up energy. But also we see the danger is that, well, we can become sleepy and complacent because of the support and the good opportunity, we can forget it. But when we're mindful, we just appreciate it. But we're aware of the uncertainties of life. We don't know how long this situation may last, how long we will have good health and the ability to practice, how long the situation will be here, we don't know. The world is an uncertain place. So although we don't want to indulge in the negative, depressing view of the world, which may be more exaggerated through proliferation of media and technology, but we don't want to ignore it either. It is an uncertain place. Life is uncertain. Our health is absolutely uncertain. We don't know how long we've got, how long our knees will last, our back will last, how long our heart will last, our blood pressure will last, and so on. We really can't expect anything from this world. Even if we had lots and lots of money and lots and lots of power, you, know, you can't guarantee something like health. You can't expect good health, even if you try and control your diet and exercise and get rid of all the possible germs and things that could hurt you and harm your body. You can't expect good health. It's just not certain. It depends on karma. And we can't be sure exactly what karma we've made, what karma relies in store for us. We can expect old age sickness and death. We can't expect good health, youth, birth or youth, young, being young all the time. The doctor was telling me the other day about the sort of the more extreme obsession with good health now is how people bring up their children. They're so concerned about germs and healthy, clean living that they segregate their kids from 
those people you know, in a position to do it segregate their kids from anyone else who has germs. Some often they school them at home or keep them in a very clean environment. If they go to a school, it has to be a certain kind of school they can pay for to keep them segregated from all kinds of germs, unhealthy food. But that's actually brought up problems. It's that some kids are growing up and their immune system is not so well developed, they're actually weaker to all the germs and the things out there in the world. They have a weakened immune system because they haven't met with so many germs, so they get hit hard when they do, even to the point where their own stomach bacteria are not well developed, they can't digest certain foods, they struggle and they get allergies and problems with digesting food, which has come from their kind of protected lifestyle, but has actually led them to be weaker than a normal human being. Most extreme cases, they have to have transplants of feces from healthy, strong, healthy people. They have to take the feces from them and implant them in the intestine of the person with a weakened immune system, just to get their intestine, the bacteria and the processes working better. So actually having a bit of dukkha, physical dukkha, mental dukkha, maybe is good for us. It's testing our immune system, it's something where we learn. Physically the body can cope with a bit of dukkha and actually makes it stronger, resistant to res disease and able to cope with what the world has to offer. And mentally we have to do the same through the practice. You know, contemplating dukkha rather than hiding away from it. Now we're in the age of information technology, so we receive information from all over the world and all kinds of information, true, false, wholesome, unwholesome, useful, useless. So we have to, more than ever we have to be on our toes mentally to what, what we receive and how we filter and deal with it. We're still dealing with the same human body. We've got the same six senses. We've got eyes, ears, nose, tongue, sense of touch, and then the mind itself. But there's maybe more of a variety to filter through. We have to be on our toes, apply mindfulness to the senses more than ever. As a bhikkhu, that's part of our sila, part of our training. Yeah. Indriya Samwara. Again, it's that place where you bring up mindfulness. You awaken to what's going on as you see, hear, taste, touch, smell. And our teachers always used to be very sharp to this. How, how are we using our senses? How is our mind reacting to what the senses are coming into contact with? So obviously to limit those sense impressions that are more un tending to stimulate unwholesome reactions. So as the Buddha said, you know, if you're careful, try not to see attractive people who arouse lust. 
members of the opposite sex, best of all, don't even see them. If you have to see them, be restrained. Just restrain your eyes and don't talk to them. If you have to talk to them, we'll be very careful. Keep it short. Keep it to the Dhamma. With food, taste and smell of food, you have to practice restraint. We don't just eat everything we like with no limit. We, we learn to eat what is enough and appropriate for our practice for a day and a night. With comfort, sitting and lying down, how much we're going to use different postures. With the things we see, visual images and, and, and read and so on, how much are we going to read, what are we going to read and look at, screens, all of this comes under sense restraint, requires some wise reflection and some careful application of mindfulness. This is training. This is where we train, kind of the daily training of a bhikkhu in Indriya Sangwara. Sometimes the Sangha or the teachers around us can help us if the mind is straying and we're watching or looking at something that's almost certainly going to bring up lust or desire in some form of unskillful desire or craving. And sometimes teachers or our Kalyana Mitya, our friends, will point it out. And look at the reaction if you're, somebody points out that maybe you're indulging your senses in one way or another and look how the mind doesn't like that. In the reaction to Somebody pointing out, you might say, pointing out kilesa arising, and we're indulging it. We don't like it. We're defensive of it. But think about it. You know, maybe they're actually helping us, helping us to know ourselves better, to wake up to reality, to see craving arising. And the other part of the mind doesn't like it, the pride, the ego. If you really are concerned to practice, you want to progress in the practice, then these are maybe good opportunities to really see your own habits, your own mind, and moments of weakness or moments where mindfulness slips. So instead of being angry or defensive, maybe it's a time to be thankful for the presence of Kalyanamitta. Obviously, the best of all is when we do it to ourselves, for ourselves. Bring up enough mindfulness to catch as we're starting to indulge. It's not all for lust and desire, sensual desire either. It can be in a negative way as well when we have, we're indulging in looking at something that brings up aversion. So looking at a person or reading something that stimulates a lot of aversion, anger, same as well. You have to be on our guard, bring up mindfulness. So on a daily basis, this is very much our practice, a sense restraint, establishing mindfulness, directing attention to the body, obviously keeping the sila, directing attention to the body and then reflecting wisely on what's going on. And learning to awaken the mind to the truth as we see it, 
and questioning our own perceptions, how often our perceptions are misleading us. Obviously when you like something you think it's good for you. When you don't like something you think it's bad for you. But sometimes even, you know, as I said, a Dhamma teacher is pointing out the Dhamma, which is maybe good for us, but the habit and the perception is, oh, I don't like this, I don't want this. We can't take it. So challenge your own perceptions, investigate them more closely. Don't just believe them. Often they're fooling us, tricking us. So tonight is the uh, Ubojata. In a moment we'll do some chanting and then tonight we can dedicate to practice. Uh, so I'll leave these reflections with you today. <laughs> 